0: Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Chris Date. Chris, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Hey, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to do this. This is a subject I've wanted to uh, tackle for a while, and I've come across the uh, uh, Rethinking Hell, the website, and uh, watched some of your videos and stuff. I can't remember where I first came across you. I may have I just really feel like it had something to do with either Jonathan Pritchett or Braxton Hunter, that area of the interwebs. But uh, I'm excited to do this, and so I'm I'm happy to have you on. But for those who may or may not be familiar with who you are, I thought it might be helpful if you uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, So my name is Chris Date. I am a software engineer in the Pacific Northwest, the greater Seattle area. Software engineering is what I've done my entire life. Uh, And by software engineer, I I mean a programmer, but software engineer sounds better. Um, And it's my official job title. It's also, however, not what I want to keep doing forever. I uh, would like to teach one day. I'd like to teach Bible and theology at the seminary or university level. And so uh, I'm wrapping up a master's in theology right now at Fuller Theological Seminary, um, after which my dream is to go on to do a PhD in Old Testament, uh, preferably at a UK school, especially Cambridge. Uh, there's an Old Testament professor there named Philip Johnston that I'd like to study under. And so that's kind of my pie in the sky dream right now. Um You asked me in the questions that you sent me how I became a Christian. Is that what you want me to cover as well? Yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. What's your testimony? How'd you become a Christian?
1: Okay. uh, Well, so um, I was pretty much an atheist up until about the age of 20 or so. Um, I had dabbled in a few different uh, non-atheist worldviews once as a very young child for maybe a few days. I was curious about the Jehovah's Witnesses because my aunt became one for about a week and then later in elementary school my best friend was a Mormon and so I was interested in um, you know the Mormon religion for a little bit but neither of those kept my interest for very long and I didn't really believe in anything. In high school I uh, for a couple of months or so considered myself a Wiccan um, which for those of your listeners who aren't familiar is sort of like a religious witchcraft and um but I didn't believe any of the theology of it. It was just something – I wanted to be able to learn how to do spells to impress girls. Um, nice. Yeah, when, girls love spells, yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, when that did not happen, when I was never able to, I quickly lost interest. And so I was pretty much an atheist – Um Even when my wife and I got married at uh, 20 years old, we were both atheists and so insistent were we on um, sort of expressing our atheism that we refused to have a minister or a pastor or something like that marry us. We hired a justice of the peace, uh, which proved to be something of a mistake as he showed up uh, to our wedding drunk and he forgot to have us read our vows. He forgot to have us kiss each other. Absolute mess. Well, that sounds like a Um,
0: memorable wedding. You'll never forget. So that there's that. That's very true. There's always a silver lining, right?
1: That's right. That's very true. Um, and it made, it was kind of funny. One of, one of my uncles, if I remember correctly, yelled out from the crowd, you know, well, kiss her already, you know, because the (laughs) justice forgot to have us do it. Well, so anyway, uh, by this time that I got married, as an a, as a, as my wife and I were atheists, by this time I had begun, and this was around when I was twenty. For two or three or four years prior to that, I had begun going on these annual or or multiple times a year camping trips with my dad. Um, we really enjoyed going caving, uh, you know, and so we went all over the country: uh, Carlsbad Caverns, Lewis and Clark Caverns, Jewel Cave, Mammoth Cave, etc. We used to love going climbing around in those and camping and stuff. And when we were on these camping trips, I used to pepper my dad with questions. As soon as I dis- as soon as I learned that he was a professing Christian, um, I used to pepper him with questions. But they weren't the kinds of sincere questions one asks, genuinely interested in the answers. They were more the kinds of questions meant to look your, make the person you're asking them of look foolish and make mm-hmm. his worldview look foolish. Um, so i was very hostile i used to make fun of other christians well one year right around it was either shortly after the birth of my first son i have four now um and the son i just mentioned is now 18 which is pretty surreal um but uh Right around the birth shortly after or shortly before the birth of my first son, my dad and I were on on one of these camping trips. And for the first half of the camping trip, nothing was different. I was still hostile. I was still asking questions meant to make my dad and his worldview look foolish. But literally overnight, and for reasons I can't explain or identify other than my Calvinistic belief in— I'd explain I my heart was changed overnight literally I went to bed one night I went not in bed but I mean I crashed in the tent one night and I woke up the next morning and the questions I were asking I was asking were no longer gotcha questions meant to make him look foolish but they were sincere you know questions genuinely interested in in what he had to say and uh when we returned from that trip I uh I, I had poked around in the bible once or twice as a child but it had never meant anything to me. It had never felt or seemed real to me. But when we got back from this trip, as an adult now, I uh, picked it up and it it had it had a different character, a different feel. It felt more like some more akin to reading a newspaper than it did reading a fairy tale, which is how it had felt to me earlier. And you know, to make a very long story much shorter, I just. I had very little idea what it is that I believe now as a Christian, and so I dove into all sorts of Christian radio and apologetics ministries and things like that to try and um, develop an understanding and appreciation for what it is that I now believe, and kind of the rest is history. Wow. that's Oh, and I I should mention, just because you and your listeners might be interested to know, a few years later my wife became a believer as well. Those first few years were really difficult, but uh, she came around by God's grace and, um, you know, things are much better now so oh that's good Uh, there's gonna be a follow-up question so that's that's good to know too
0: uh so your dad became a christian later in life
1: i honestly don't know when or how um or to even what extent he believes and and how you know genuine it is or whatever that's it's strange i've never thought to ask him how he became a christian or you know how much how firmly he believes in it we we've had conversations since um but for whatever reason, my interest in matters of scripture and matters of exegesis and theology and things is way more than his. So it's, yeah, he may be nominal. He just doesn't talk about it much. I don't know.
0: Uh, I was just wondering if you were like raised Christian.
1: No, no, we never went yeah. to church. Nothing like that. I never had any exposure to Christian theology outside of those brief forays I mentioned into the Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses and Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's
0: very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, mm-hmm. So, when do you, or what made you start to uh, to use the name of the website, Rethink Hell? And so, this is kind of the subject of conversation that we're going to be uh, talking about today. Um, there's this ministry or website resource called Rethink Hell. And so, what made you Rethink Hell in the first place?
1: Well, before I answer that, just a very minor correction. The ministry name is Rethinking Hell. Um, right. I just want to make sure people know that yeah. so they can go to sure. the website yeah. and stuff. Um So this again is kind of a long story. I'm going to try and condense it, but suffice to say that in uh, true, in 2009, I think it was, I began doing a podcast uh, of my own making called The Apologetics, which is sort of the words theology and apologetics combined. And um, I would uh, very very soon after starting that podcast, I started having guests on to be interviewed, uh, and. I enjoyed bringing people on to be interviewed who didn't share certain views I have, as long as they were on secondary issues over which Christians can legitimately disagree. And uh, around 2000, early 2011, something like that, I was um, ministering with uh, a woman named Dee Dee Warren. She had a website at the time called The Preterist Blog and Podcast, mm. and I was a contributor to that, and so was somebody that I was becoming friends with and am now friends with named Glenn Peoples. He's a uh, philosopher and Christian from New Zealand. And uh, I knew I ca- or came to know that he was what's known as a non-reductive physicalist. He is, uh, when, in, in the language of philosophy of mind, that means he doesn't believe that human beings have Im- uh, immaterial souls or spirits that survive death. And I was asking him about that one day, and I pressed him on his n- n- physicalism from Matthew 10:28, in which Jesus says, don't fear men who can kill only the body but can't kill the soul, rather fear God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And I said doesn't this sound like it's teaching some sort of a body-soul dualism? And he said, well, before I answer that, don't you, Chris, believe in the doctrine of eternal torment, and doesn't this seem to challenge your view? And I said, well, I think on the surface it might. Uh, You know, Fast forward now to almost 10 years later, and I think it very strongly does challenge that view, but at the time I was like, I think it might, but I've got other texts, like this text from Mark 9, 48, in which Jesus says, those in Gehenna, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And he said, okay, but, go and look at what jesus is quoting there because that's not language of jesus's own making it's he's quoting isaiah 66 24 in which it is explicitly dead bodies that are being consumed by fire and by maggots and that really threw me for a loop and it had me intrigued and so i decided uh you know at the time Edward Fudge, who is the author of the seminal work on the topic we're discussing today, Conditional Immortality, Annihilationism. We'll discuss all this, I'm sure, as the interview goes on. But he had just released uh, the third edition and most recent edition and what would end up being the final edition because he's since passed away. But the, the third edition of his book, The Fire That Consumes. And so I decided, you know what, I'll have Edward Fudge on as an interview guest, I'll spend an hour giving him um, a chance to let us get to know him and to understand his positive case, why it is that he believes what he does and so forth. And then I would spend the next hour, the second hour, grilling him, you know, just throwing every um, challenge, every objection, every question that I could either think of or could find that seemed like it was a legitimate challenge to his view. And in the course of preparing for that interview, reading his book and researching it and contesting it in light of scripture, and in the course of conducting that interview, I found myself very much on the fence. Prior to that point, I had been convinced of eternal torment. I had defended it in arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses and things. But um, I'm extremely committed, at least I think I am, extremely committed to the authority and the inerrancy of scripture. And his biblical case, um, I could not find any holes in it, and meanwhile, all of the objections, all of the challenges that I threw his way, um, he had very good answers to her, so I felt. Yeah. So by the time this interview was over, and again, this was in mid-2011, I believe it was, I was on the fence, and so in the months that followed, I had a, a, a believer in eternal torment on the show as a guest, his name was Larry is Larry Dixon, he's the author of a book called The Other Side of the Good News. And I moderated a couple of debates on my podcast and I just kept being more and more um, convinced of conditionalism by the biblical data and by the terrible arguments, at least that's how I assess them to be, the terrible arguments that proponents of eternal torment were offering. Um, And so by 2012, I think I was pretty much convinced, especially after I uh, did my very own first debate on that podcast, and then in mid-2012, I was on Unbelievable, and it was right around 2012, right around that interview on Unbelievable, I think it was, or shortly thereafter, that um, a guy named Peter Grice founded this ministry, Rethinking Hell. I had no part in the name of that ministry or anything, so I can't tell you the why it was that Peter came up with that name. I can tell you, however, that the reason or the reason why we keep using that name, the reason we think it's uh, appropriate, is because we are not necessarily, as a ministry, calling Christians to change their mind about hell, although we think that many of them should. We think the biblical data is just about as clear on this topic as it is on any other. But for those whose minds aren't changed, we think it's valuable for them to take a closer look dig into the scriptures and develop for themselves a better understanding than they might have previously had of why they hold to their view of hell and why they don't hold to say ours Mm. and so it's rethinking hell because we'd love for people to change their minds on hell but even if they just start thinking more carefully about it and better better understand what they believe and why and what we believe and why we would still count that as a as a pretty significant win Mm
0: -hmm. um so
1: that's that's the beginning of rethinking hell yeah,
0: That would definitely be a, a, a significant win. It would also be a significant win if, and I don't know if this happens a lot, but I'm sure it probably does, where as soon as you bring up um – an alternative view to something that is taken to be traditional, like I, I would take it, the traditional view is eternal torment. So that if you come along and say, "Well, what about this conditionalism?", you it's probably pretty easy for people to be dismissive and say that that's like liberal theology or something like that's that. Right. Just place that dismissive label on it and then walk away and not have to re- rethink it at all. And so it would probably I, I would consider it a win if people would just say, "Well, let, let's not just label everyone that disagrees with us uh, as a liberal it may just be the case that they have a biblical case as well and and
1: I'm sure you, you do. Um, it's also worth observing that the that liberals and progressives tend toward universalism and not toward conditionalism. Generally speaking conditionalism is the route that conservatives go who are no longer convinced of the traditional view. It's not the route that uh, or, or it's not yeah it's not the route that liberals and progressives tend to go.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you bring up a good, good point because on the website it has this triangle and oh, yeah. uh, the, there's a name up for it and I'll let you share it. But um, uh, And it kind of talks about the three major views of hell. It might be helpful just to briefly discuss each one of those real quick if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, I'll pull this up just for my own reference. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if people just Google Rethinking Hell, Hell Triangle. um, And I I will leave
0: a link in the description to Rethinking Hell as well as all things Chris Date in the description below. There will be links, every link I can find.
1: (laughs) Well, the links to the Rethinking Hell materials will be a lot better than the links to all things Chris Date. But I appreciate it nevertheless. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, if people just Google uh, Rethinking Hell, Hell Triangle, they'll – be able to pull up the link and open the, the triangle. Basically, the, the triangle um was the brainchild of Glenn Peoples and another friend of the ministry named uh, Ronnie Demler. And basically what they realized is that there are these three major views of hell that I'll describe here in a moment, which interestingly, each each pair of them share something in common. And uh and the third one um, differs from the other two in that regard. So, for example, um, the doctrine of universalism and the doctrine of eternal torment, they both share something in common, namely, uh, the universal immortality of humankind. And, and I'm and here I'm not really talking about the immortality of the soul, when people bring that up, I think it's a bit of a red herring because the doctrine, according to eternal torment, the historical view of eternal torment anyway, uh, the, the wicked, the lost, the unrighteous, the damned, however you wanna to refer to them, they don't suffer in hell forever as disembodied souls or spirits. Um, Orthodox Christians throughout church history have affirmed the bodily resurrection of both the saved and the lost, you know, whether you look at that in a premillennial scheme or an amillennial scheme or whatever, all human beings will one day be bodily, physically raised from their graves. And the doctrine of eternal torment has said that that the, the saved, upon being resurrected, will be granted bodily, physical immortality, and they will physically live forever on a transformed renewed new heavens and new earth whereas the damned according to this doctrine of eternal torment they too will be given the quality of everlasting physical life immortal immortality physically speaking um and that is something that's also true of universalists and universalism um according to the doctrine of universalism at least the version of universalism that is popular amongst some evangelicals um When the wicked are raised, some of them might repent very quickly, but the most hardened, the most stubborn and obstinate of sinners may take eons to repent and express saving faith and thereby be saved out of hell. but that requires immortality as well. People don't naturally live for eons and eons and eons. So both the doctrines of universalism and eternal torment, they share in common this idea that upon the being raised from the dead, all human beings will be universally made immortal. By contrast, the doctrine of conditional immortality says that immortality is not going to be universally given to all humankind, but rather it will be given only to those who meet a particular condition. That's why it's called conditional immortality or conditionalism for short. And that condition is the condition of being saved. And of course, if you're a Protestant, you generally think of salvation in terms of grace through faith alone, whereas if you're a Catholic, and there are some Catholics who hold to this view, they would say that that condition is met through, you know the sacraments and you know whatever else roman catholics might think um so, whereas traditionalists or, or believers in eternal torment and universalists believe all humankind will be made immortal when they are raised from the dead, we conditionalists believe that only those who meet the condition of being saved will be given bodily immortality. Only they will go on living forever in this transformed, glorified cosmos, which will have been purged of all evil and all wickedness and all pain and all suffering, because those who do not, those who don't meet that condition, the, the lost, the saved, the or the unsaved, the unbelievers, the the wicked because they aren't made immortal they will remain mortal and their punishment will their punishment will be everlasting death they will literally die a second time and their privation of life will go on for eternity they will never ever ever live again and the reason why this view is sometimes also called annihilationism is because if human beings have an immaterial soul or spirit that's that subsists consciously after the death of the body when the when a person dies the first time. We believe that that soul, when it's reunited to the body and they die a second death, the soul will be destroyed along with their bodies, which we think is a pretty um, straightforward reading of Matthew 10:28, that verse I mentioned earlier, where uh, Jesus says, fear God who can destroy both bodies and souls in Gehenna. So in a nutshell, that's conditionalism. It's the view that embodied life is a gift, uh, 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 enduring ongoing, everlasting embodied life is something that will only be given to the saved. When we are raised from the dead, everyone else will be destroyed in both body and soul, and they will never live again. And that, that ongoing lifelessness will be their everlasting punishment.
0: And I, I think just on the faith, I'm just rethinking now. I'm, rethinking, if that was no pun intended, but uh, I'm thinking back to, because uh, we were talking before the interview that I'm mostly focused on philosophy and things, apologetics and that sort of nature, but I always keep an eye on theological discussions and biblical discussions like uh, this one, at least this is how I'm classifying them in my head, and um, I'm thinking I was reading, I think I was preparing a message on John 3.16 and just how the gift of salvation was eternal life, and I thought about that for, you know, I'm th- trying to think deeply, like how am I going to communicate this to the, the church and things like that. And I was just thinking critically and got to thinking, well, if the gift is eternal life, and but if the gift of salvation is eternal life, and and then, pe- but people who go to hell, they are living forever. Like, they they still have eternal life. I was just thinking, well, that doesn't quite add up. And I'm not saying that as, like, a proof text or a knockdown argument sure. or anything. I'm just saying that's what got me thinking. I think that's what it was. I'm just remembering here is all I'm
1: saying, but... Yeah and, and that's a great passage to bring up because although I didn't see the significance of John 3:16 to this debate until after I was convinced of this view it, it's interesting that not only does Jesus say there in John 3:16 that those who do not believe will perish the the middle the, the middle voice there in Greek being used to say uh the, the they you know the unbelievers will perish will die that's what it what that verb means in the middle voice um, it, not only does he say that that they will perish, but he, but that's his, This is right after, like literally the very next verse, after Jesus has just compared himself to the bronze statue, the bronze serpent that Moses uh, crafted in the right. wilderness, and to which Israelites who had been bitten by otherwise fatal uh, snake bites um, would have died if they hadn't looked at this bronze serpent. So Jesus is saying, and this isn't the only place he says it. He says, it, says something like this elsewhere as well. He's saying just as moses bronze serpent saved people's lives so will i right but of course according to the doctrine of eternal torment jesus doesn't save anybody's life he, right. he everybody gets to live forever regardless of whether they're in christ or not and so that is an interesting passage that you bring up
0: yeah and i think that and i think the next thing i thought was well because i'm sitting here thinking well maybe they don't live forever maybe these annihilationist guys are right after all because i had heard the term before and i thought well the punishment for sin is death and, um, you know, that was the punishment all along, all the way back in Genesis, so uh, maybe there's something there. And then I quickly got back to my philosophy and apologetics and said, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to wait on that one. I'm sorry, I'll have to wait on that one. I'm still trying well, to— it's
1: okay. <laughs> it's okay because there are philosophers who are trading in this debate. So, for example, um, you might be familiar with a guy named Jim Spiegel or James Spiegel. He's a well-known Christian philosopher, and he— which you know discusses this doctrine a lot, um, and and Glenn Peoples is a philosopher, so you could you could make room in your studies of philosophy. Well, for this
0: debate. I, I'm sure I will. I mean, I always try to make room for one of my biggest theological interests is the atonement, and and yeah. actually I have to admit that it has some apologetic value, uh, as we'll probably get to here as well, but. That um, just seems to be the one thing that um, if a skeptic isn't going to directly object to my argument for the existence of God or for Christianity or the resurrection of Jesus, if they're going to bring up a theological issue to try to make Christianity sound incoherent as opposed to just like uh, um, like it doesn't correspond to reality instead of going that route if they just want to make it sound incoherent. Uh, internally, they usually always bring up the atonement, and so that's something that always uh, gets me thinking, and, and it actually ties in with this discussion, which we'll get to later. And, and before you say anything else, I want to say, okay, so um, we've heard what the conditionalist view is. We've already kind of gotten to this next question, but what biblical support do you see for this view? And uh, proof text, fine, but really what is just kind of the biblical theological view that you see, uh, just kind of what you see in the Bible that really supports this view?
1: Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. And let me just preface it by saying I've never, even even now, as a convinced conditionalist, I've never struggled emotionally or philosophically with the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, I'm very staunchly reformed Calvinist, and I uh, and, and I'm committed to believing that what God does is just, it's righteous, whatever it is that He does. And so, if His will, if he, if He determined that the proper punishment for sin were immortality and everlasting life in some dark gloomy corner corner of the cosmos in pain and in agony, so be it. But uh, I, as I said earlier in this conversation, find myself or think I am very committed to the authority and inerrancy of scripture. And so I was sort of dragged kicking and screaming I to embrace this, despite that I knew it would cause me a lot of uh, grief, you know, ministry doors, opportunities, uh, doors of opportunity closing to me, churches I couldn't be members of, uh, schools I couldn't teach at or even study at and on and on it goes. So, um... So what is that biblical support? Well, honestly, I could spend hours at this point answering this question. But what I'll do is I'll just summarize uh, the four lines of argument that Glenn Peoples offers in the first book that we, uh, Rethinking Hell published called Rethinking Hell. Um, he has an introductory chapter in that volume. The, the rest of the book is is reproductions of um, works written by people in the past, John Stott, John Wenham, Clark Pinnock, Ed Fudge, and others. But Peter Grice has an introductory chapter, and so does Glenn Peoples. And in Glenn's article, he offers four uh, biblical lines of our, uh, support for this view. And he emphasizes that each one of these are independent of the other three. They don't. One of them could fail to be true. Uh, under or, or fail to be the best interpretation of Scripture under scrutiny and you'd still have to contend with the other three um, which makes, and what's more, they're not proof texts, they're more like themes that are supported by a number of proof texts throughout Scripture and, and, and it makes the case, I think, extremely powerful those four themes are as follows. Number one, the biblical question of immortality. So if you go back to the very beginning of scripture, Adam and Eve, they sin, and as a consequence of their sin, God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden for the explicit purpose that they not have access to the tree of life and thereby live forever. You see that in Genesis 3, 17 and 22, I think it is. Um, so access to the tree of life would have kept Adam and, alive, Adam and Eve alive, but their access to that tree was revoked by God in order to ensure that they no longer live forever. That tree of life reappears at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 22. Uh, it appears in the new, have, the new Jerusalem, and only the saved have access to its fruit, which I think is pretty clear symbolism, indicating that the righteous are the ones, the saved are the ones who will be made immortal. And this is consistent with what we see in First Corinthians 15, where Paul says that this mortal must put on immortality in order to be made fit for the, in, the kingdom of God. You know, there's nowhere in Scripture where immortality is ascribed to the wicked, and its purpose, its expressed purpose in Scripture is to make us fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, if a swath of humanity isn't going to inherit the kingdom of God, there would be no purpose in granting them immortality. We also see in John, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 35 and 36, I think it is, Jesus says to, this, uh, um, to the Sadducees, that uh, those who are deemed worthy to attain to the age to come and to the resurrection, um, they will be unable to die anymore. Well, what is the obvious corollary that the lost will be able to die still? And of course, they will die. Um, So these are just a a, a few samples of biblical texts that support this theme that literally spans scripture cover to cover, which indicates that only the saved will be given immortality. The second line of evidence is what Glenn calls the biblical um, vision of eternity, and for this he draws on passages in the New Testament which say things like um, God will be all in all. Um, using accounting terminology, Paul talks about how God will uh, or Christ will sum all things up in Himself, and He will be all in all. You also see um, other texts in Scripture like Isaiah 66, where the wicked have been destroyed and the righteous are the ones who uh, are are left, and, and the picture here and in other passages seems to be that uh, the universe is completely reconciled to God. Now that doesn't mean that every single Creature that has ever existed will be reconciled to God. But what it does seem to mean is that all who remain forever will have been reconciled to God. And so you've got this biblical picture of eternity in which there's really no room in the cosmos for evil and for pain and wickedness and so forth. It's all been gotten rid of. The, the biblical vision of eternity is one of shalom, perfect shalom throughout God's uh, cosmos. And for listeners who aren't aware, shalom is a, is a, a very complex biblical word, but in a, in a nutshell, it's peace. So that's a second uh, line of evidence. A third line of biblical evidence is what what Glenn calls the biblical language of destruction. And we've already looked at a couple of those texts Matthew 10 28, John 3 16. Romans 6 23 says the wages of sin is death. Um, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 9 that the wicked will uh, face eternal destruction, referring to uh, uh, the result of being destroyed, lasting forever. Um, all uh, There's just tons and tons and tons of biblical data that we could cite here, both in the Old Testament and, the, and in the the new um, Jesus says in Matthew 13, he gives this parable of the wheat and the tares, where at the end of the story in this parable, the tares are removed from amongst the wheat, and the tares are thrown into a furnace of fire and burned up, the Greek word katakayo, literally meaning to burn, to completely burn up, to reduce to ashes. And a few verses later in Matthew 13, Jesus interprets that parable saying that just as the weeds are thrown into the fire, so will the wicked be thrown into uh, a, a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this furnace of fire language that he's using um, not only interprets the parable as indicating that so too will the wicked be burned up but he's also alluding to Malachi chapter 4 in which the wicked are thrown into a, fur- a, fu- a furnace and reduced to ashes beneath the soles of the ri- feet of the righteous mm-hmm. on and on and on it could go I could <laughs> spend hours just talking yeah. about the biblical text to uh, support this
0: before you get to the fourth point yeah. I want I wanted to jump in before I forget that sure. uh, there's just this um, um, biblical theological point that I've always thought of as well um, where people will go back to Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, like you, where, where you started, and say, uh, okay, so so you made it um, a point to say that what they were disconnected from was the tree of life, which seems explicitly clear to me. Um, but some people will try to make a point of uh, the punishment was that they were separated from God, and that's that's what it was. Which, I think if you keep reading, is obviously false. They weren't separated from God in chapter 4. But um, anyway, the, the point that they try to make there is like, so th- the punishment... For uh, uh, the unsaved, the lost, has always been even since the beginning to be separated from God, and that's what hell is. Hell is just being separated from God for eternity. But one of the obvious problems with that is that God is—he's um, omnipresent. You could never be separated from God. The only way to be separated from God is to just not exist. And so I've just always—that's always been in my head. Maybe since I was a little kid, but I've just always thought. This just doesn't add up. You can't be separated from God in any serious sense, and as soon as you start trying to qualify that, it just no longer means separate. It means you're basically just saying nothing at that point. That's just something I've always thought of.
1: It's it's a great insight. You know, what does Paul say at the Areopagus? He says that in Him we live and breathe and have our very being. You know, God gives to humankind life and breath and everything. We are we exist and live only because we are gifted. Existence and life and to be separated from the quintessential source of life and being would be to no longer live and be so I, I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah, um, go ahead with the fourth uh, so, point. Yeah, so, so lastly, the fourth issue is the atonement. Um, there's uh, e- even even putting aside the theological Reasons behind substitutionary atonement. And notice, I didn't say penal. I am. I do believe in penal substitutionary atonement. But even Christus Victor and other models of the atonement still trade on a concept of substitution. Uh, but but it's not just theological. It's it's linguistic. In the New Testament, there are many places in the Scriptures where uh, Greek prepositions are used to say that Jesus substituted uh, for for us for sinners. So what did Jesus do? What? punishment did he bear or at the very least what did he suffer in our stead in our place so that we won't have to well he of course was granted immortality and lived forever on torment on the cross right well no he died on the cross and in fact everywhere in the bible where where the suffering of the messiah is discussed it also discusses his death and that is what scripture repeatedly and consistently emphasizes as that in which his substitutionary atoning work primarily consisted. He died for us. So if if Jesus bore what was coming to us, then what Jesus did for us on the cross ought to be a fairly decent window through which we can see what we should expect to take place in hell for those who either he didn't substitute for, if you're a Calvinist like me and believe in limited atonement, or if you're a non-Calvinist or otherwise believe in a universal atonement, um, those who refuse to self-appropriate Christ's work to themselves through faith, we ought to expect what happens to them in hell to be similar in important respects to what happened to Jesus on the cross. But of course, what happened to Jesus on the cross is that he died. And by died, we don't ever mean some sort of code language, you know, or some some sort of metaphor. We, no, he, he stopped breathing. Yeah. right his heart stopped pumping so we think that that is uh, a a really good reason for thinking that hell um the punishment of hell is death as well because that was the punishment that Jesus bore yeah. on our behalf since we're already um, here yeah, let's l- since we're
0: already here let's take a pause on the atonement cuz i think this is a big one so uh um what what you you might often hear in these traditional circles is that on like literally on the cross like before death on the cross Jesus bore The sins of the world on his shoulders and I've never Mm. been able to really grasp what that means because to bear the wrath um, that's uh, or to bear the sins of the world on your shoulders to me means to take the punishment of sin upon yourself and so I've just always thought Mm. if you believe in eternal torment then you must believe that he's being like his soul is being tormented there on the cross is that not the understanding
1: well, not just his soul, but his body, too. Remember, hell, yeah. historically speaking, is a belief in embodied hell. But but yes, and, and they would – when they are challenged with, well, why didn't Jesus suffer forever on the cross, they will offer what is, at least on the surface, a plausible answer. But as it turns out, that answer will work against them and actually render them almost heretical. And if you'd like, I can explain what I mean by that.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
1: Sure. So <laughs> – so when they're challenged with, well, why didn't Jesus suffer on the cross forever? Well, what they will usually do, and I think this is fine insofar as it goes, uh, they will point out that Jesus is the God-man. He's the he's incarnate mm-hmm. God. He's the Theanthropos, the God-man. And, and, and as such, he is, he, is of, he is of infinite dignity, infinite worth. And so the, the the conscious suffering on the cross that lasted for only a finite duration of time can qualify... Full, as the eternity of torment awaiting his people because he's of this infinite worth. Right. And in and of – I mean as far as it goes, that argument is fine. I don't actually have any objections to it except Well, I might for have
0: – yeah, well, I want sure, to say something. And, and this is where we get into what I mean by this has um, always interested me – uh, concerning my interest in apologetics, so the skeptics will will ask me this question: uh, You believe that Jesus died for the world's sins, right? Yeah. So, how does someone who uh, took a few hours to die on a cross pay the punishment of eternal torment? And uh, I mean, that's why it's been a difficult one. And 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 I gi- have given uh, in the past the the answer that you just mentioned that well. Um, but i can I've always seen right through it and and that's dishonest of me. I'm just being honest now, <laughs> not then then I just needed to have an answer um so I'm admitting to uh, some faults here but um and the answer that is given is that Jesus is of this qualitative nature um his quality is so good um that he can substitute um for what we would have to endure eternally but I mean I just gave away the game which is well there's a, clearly a distinction between qualitative and quantity there where I mean the punishment for the sinner is eternal torment in hell it's it's not just the torment it's the it's the eternity that matters it's it's the quantity of time that matters and I don't see how just because he's um more excellent than us that that somehow takes away the quantitative nature of it. So I've just always seen that distinction between quality and quantity as being a defeater to that, but maybe it's not, but anyway.
1: Well, let me play the devil's advocate and and defend my, I shouldn't say devil's advocate, I'm not comparing my traditionalist brothers and sisters to the devil, but that having been said, they might say The reason why it is eternal, why it is quantitatively infinite for human beings in hell, is because a finite being can't suffer an infinite amount of torment in any finite duration of time. But arguably, an infinite being like the incarnate God-man could suffer in a finite duration of time an infinite degree of torment. Yeah. That might be how they would push it back. Um, and so, yes, there is a difference between qualitative and quantitative, but the reason, but, but the difference actually could be argued to support their contention because the, the, the infinite quantity is only there for human beings because an infinite quality is – they can't suffer an infinite degree of torment in any finite amount of time.
0: Well, as long as time is passing, then I guess um, – here's another problem with eternal torment. You're – you're never actually going to reach um, an eternal torment or an infinite torment because, I mean, just like right now in apologetics and William Lane Craig, who often says an actual infinite isn't even possible. Um, so you're actually never going to reach your punishment. Uh, first of all, the fact that I'm not um, suffering eternal torment, right, like if I was a non-believer, non-believers right now here on earth, argue, arguably, I, I suppose, aren't um, they haven't always been suffering for eternity. That's the only way you could suffer, as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I can tell right now, an infinite time of torment, is if you never ceased, You there was never a time when you didn't exist and in torment, and there never will be a time when you exist and not in torment. That's the only way you could ever actually suffer, but I suppose I might be being too specific in the terminology there, but that was another problem that came up in my mind, but yeah, go ahead.
1: No, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about that, what that means is that justice is never completely finished.
0: Yeah, and, and I also think, and I also think it, I'm sorry. I, I just, yeah, that's right. Uh, and I also think it makes the uh, what the response to, okay, so I said, well, there's a difference between quality and quantity, and you said you were going to play devil's advocate. I think that understanding breaks down your devil, ad, devil advocate's uh, response in saying, if you say that, Jesus is an infinite being can suffer in a finite time what a a finite being would have to suffer infinitely, and then I'm saying they haven't and never will and never could Mm. suffer infinitely, then now the analogy becomes disanalogous, and I don't think the response works. Does that make sense?
1: It does, and I've I've exhausted my ability to play devil's advocate. Right, yeah, no.
0: I just wanted to see if I came up right here on the spot. I'm not good at thinking on my feet. I've always said that I don't think I would ever accept the invitation to a debate, but I think that's what the response would be there.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a legitimate one, but but going back to the the atonement, the reason why I say that that answer, I think actually ends up making them a abor- uh, making the doctrine of eternal torment borderline heresy is because think think about the volume of torment that he had to suffer. As a line, right? Um, the the that line goes on. It starts at one point in time for human beings in hell, and then it goes off forever in the other direction. But what this answer to the challenge says is that Jesus's line was finite in length, right? But if that's the case, if the if the if Jesus in this finite length of torment, this finite duration of torment, suffered the equivalent of an infinite amount of torment that was otherwise awaiting those for whom he died. Well, then what happens after this point? He dies. But wait a minute. Why did he die? He exhausted their punishment. Right. right? So, So what you end up, what that ends up doing is it ends up making his death an arbitrary afterthought. It's not part of his substitutionary atoning work. And yet that is... At the core of the very gospel itself, it's what Jesus, it's what Paul says at the very beginning of First Corinthians 15 when he says, "I have delivered to you as of utmost importance that which I received, that the, the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and rose three days later." So, I think that that answer not only fails to do justice for some of the reasons that you've explained, and for others fails to answer the challenge, but I actually think it ends up working against them because it makes death, Jesus's death wow. an, an arbitrary afterthought.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at when I was saying you often hear them talk about. Uh, Jesus, literally, he bore the punishment for our sins while he was on the cross, and he took on this, everybody's, like, this infinite amount of punishment for sins. Um, You know, uh, the analogy of him bearing it on his shoulders there on the cross. And and then what you just said is what I was really getting at, which is, yeah, but that's before he died, apparently. Uh, So what was the purpose of the death? Yeah, that's a great question. Whereas, if you understand this from a conditionalist point of view like yourselves, things just become much simpler (laughs) you know okay the the punishment for sin is death which is explicitly there and so Jesus bore our punishment he literally died which is explicitly there in in the scriptures as well and it doesn't have to go beyond that basically yeah they're
1: it's very true. In fact, Edward Fudge was known for um, reminding people that one of the benefits to being a conditionalist is that you no longer have to um, explain away certain texts of Scripture. Just all you just get to use biblical language, and it all it all makes sense and fits together very well.
0: So. Yeah, yeah. So basically, man is created in the garden, and and all is good. They have access to eternal life there with God, and 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 they sin, and now they're kicked out of the garden. Now they will die, which just so happens to be God's exact language in the garden. The day you eat of it, you shall die. The punishment was death. And then Jesus comes along and li- literally dies in our place, which is also— well, uh, You mean,
1: skipped over something, though, and that is the the Yeah, the, the whole testament, the most... yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, which is also a literal death. Uh, it's not like the goats were going to hell or anything like that, yeah and then and then jesus sacrificially dies in our place on the cross he he just literally dies uh so that we don't have to die which we'll we'll just go ahead and say this because there's just an elephant in the room and i was going to save it for later but we'll go ahead and get there now since we're there if that is the case if that is the correct view of things why do we why do christians that is believers still die shouldn't we just well i believe so now i'm never going to die
1: yeah, that's a good question. So, firstly, it's important to understand that the punishment is not dying, right? The the event of death isn't the punishment because if it were, then moments after you breathe your last, you could be resuscitated and you'd be go. The electric chair kills somebody and then moments later they take a gasp and they and they come back to life they kill them you know they make sure they're dead because the punishment is not the act of dying or the event of dying it's the result of dying it's the lifelessness that results from that and if a person's lifelessness is undone then they haven't indeed suffered the punishment that they were um sentenced to so that's number one um number two and and, and once i put these pieces in place, I'll I'll do some synthesis and explain the the point of these points. Um, Number two, not all Two people can suffer the same thing and yet it can end up being only punishment for one of them. So here's an analogy. Let's say that you've got two people in prison awaiting trial for for the same crime. Um, they spend six months in prison, then they are brought out of prison to stand trial. One of them is declared innocent and goes free. The other one is declared guilty and they're sentenced to 30 years in prison. Well the 6 months they've already spent in prison will typically uh, be will go toward their sentence and so their time in prison will have will be treated as if they've already suffered some of their punishment but the person who's let free nobody considers his 6 months in prison a punishment he was, They could say he was being held awaiting trial or whatever, but he wasn't punished. He was just being held for trial under the suspicion of having committed the crime. So you can have multiple people end up suffering the same thing for a while, and if they come out of that and only one returns um, and the other one is declared innocent, well, then their, their brief time in prison or whatever will not have been considered a, a punishment, but the other person returns to the punishment that he had already begun in prison. Now, let me put those pieces together. If the punishment for sin is not dying, but being dead, um, then if at some point in the future, people are raised from the dead to face trial, and some of them are declared innocent and go on living forever, and the rest are found guilty and returned to the grave, never to live again, then i think we can legitimately say in the same you know just like in the analogy i just offered we can legitimately say that those who died came back to life and go on living they they weren't punished with death they were rescued from death and declared innocent and you could say that they spent time in prison for the prison of death in this case for one reason or another um, for example we could answer that question by saying that god has not yet chosen to um to 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 finalize to consummate everything and so we've still got this already not yet dynamic where right. some things are, are in place and other things are yet to come and one of the things that is yet to come is the glorification of humankind which includes their immortalization um, so we can answer that question in a number of different ways but the point is jesus is saving work on the cross by dying on the in their place we get to be rescued from death and and to live forever and so we don't we're, we're we're not punished with everlasting death we are saved from everlasting death and meanwhile the wicked when they are raised to be judged they're guilty they're, they're declared to be guilty and they return to death where they where they that will be their punishment forever that the not having any life yeah. um, and i think that's i think that's consistent um, I, I don't think that it's it answers all the questions uh, but I don't think that any of the questions that it raises are insurmountable or challenge mm-hmm. the doctrine to the point where it's incoherent.
0: Yeah. So this isn't an objection, um, but does the, the, the second judgment or the second death, does, doesn't that seem kind of redundant?
1: <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, go back to my analogy of people awaiting um, trial in prison. And let's say what they're awaiting trial for is a criminal, a capital offense. All right. An offense for which if they were found guilty, they would subsequently be executed. So these two people spend some time in prison awaiting trial for that. They come out of trial. They come out to be tried. One of them is, is set free and the other one or, or let's say the, 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 what would have happened is that they come out of tri- out of prison. They stand trial. One is, is declared innocent. The other one's declared guilty. And he goes to the electric chair. Well, let's say that that process is interrupted because a cellmate uses a shiv and kills the guilty person in prison. Um, and let's say that everybody in the world is, is convinced that he did the, the deed, right? He's, he, everybody thinks he's guilty. Um, justice hasn't yet been done there has been no trial there has been no opportunity for the for the criminal to alleged criminal the suspected criminal to give a defense there has been no opportunity for witnesses to bear testimony and so on and so forth the 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 thing that is necessary for justice to happen hasn't yet happened the trial and all of its accoutrements so what so, so the so what do the prison officials do do they just let that person remain dead after his cellmate kills him no they scramble to resuscitate him so that he can stand trial even if they know that he's going to be found guilty and will end up going back to, to the electric will go end up going to the electric chair to be killed. So the point of that is to say, yes, it is in certain respects a return to the same punishment they'd already begun. But it's necessary in order for for genuine justice to come about. God is not an unjust judge, and he's going to give the the, um, the, the he's going to give sinners the opportunity to stand trial. If even only um, metaphorically speaking, they'll have the opportunity to defend themselves, and they're going to do a terrible job at it. God's a perfect <laughs> judge, and he's going to know that they're they are indeed guilty. Um, and that yeah. So that's how I would answer the question. Okay,
0: okay. So uh, moving on from there, then. Um, how do you, um how do you understand biblical passages um that would at least on the face of things seem to support a traditionalist traditionalist or eternal torment uh view so uh, i don't have any proof text but uh, you've already mentioned some like the worm uh, that does not rot the unquenchable fire uh no rest day or night uh that sort of language um, and and you'll obviously know the objections better than I do. And then uh, how do you respond to them?
1: Um, so first, I'm glad you asked this question. One thing I want to – one thing I, I uh, very often say, because I'm very often asked, what most convinced you of conditional immortality? Yeah. My answer is typically – I became convinced that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality. Mm -hmm. And that's the case with all of the examples that you've given. I'll just cover those three. And then if people want to um, learn how we address certain other texts, they can check out the Rethinking Home Ministry and find that out or just email me or whatever. And I'm sure we'll figure out contact by the end of the show. so first of all, you mentioned the worm does not rot. I actually think you mean the worm does not die. Sure, um, that's yeah. from Mark 9:48. 48. Uh, it also says the, the fire is not quenched. And what Jesus is doing there is he's quoting Isaiah 66, 24, where it is explicitly dead bodies whose worm does not die and whose fire is not quenched. Now, what does it mean for a fire not to be quenched? We Sometimes for some bizarre reason that I've yet to figure out, we, we go to these texts and we think that to quen- a fire for a fire to be quenched means the fire dies out, but that's not what quench means. To quench is to put out, to extinguish, and a fire that will not be quenched or extinguished burns up. Um, if you imagine you're at work and you get a phone call and it's firefighters at their ha- at your house and they tell you you better ho- we- you better run home we're trying to put out your fire but you better come home and, and and you know be here whatever. So you get there and you see your your house has been reduced to rubble, to smoldering, smoking rubble. And imagine the fire the fireman uh, there's no more flames and the fireman comes up to you and says, "Hey, just uh, you're you're welcome Hayden. You, we we quenched your fire. You, we we put out your house fire." Well, you'd be like, of course you didn't. You failed to quench my house fire, which is why it's sitting here and smoking remains yeah. in front of me. And that's how the biblical, that's what the biblical language means in both Old and New Testament. You, you have several places in Amos and in Isaiah, I think it is, or at the very least Ezekiel, where because God's fiery wrath is said to not be quenched, it is simultaneously said to devour or consume palaces and trees and things like that. So a fire that won't be quenched it will be completely will completely consume whatever it is that it's burning up it doesn't say anything about whether that fire will go on burning for some other reason all it's saying is that it won't be stopped from doing what it's meant to do Mm. so that's number one as for the fire that does not die or the worm that won't die The worm here in Isaiah's language is a maggot. Um, The very first time he uses the word translated worm here, he sets it in parallel with maggot. And the idea here is that this is the kind of maggot that eats on dead meat, you know, carcasses, dead bodies. And the picture here is very similar to the picture that we read of in Jeremiah chapter 7, where the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, where Molech worshippers or or Baal worshippers would sacrifice their children in fire. God says this Valley of the Son of Hinnom will no longer be called that. Instead, it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. because the corpses of my enemies will be left unburied and he says the the um, birds of the air and the beasts of the earth will not be frightened away from these corpses of God's slain enemies well what is that a picture of the picture is you've got these corpses and their loved ones might be trying to frighten away the scavengers so that they won't eat these bodies because that was extremely shameful and contemptible in the eyes of the ancient ancient Israel uh, Israelite but Jeremiah 7 is saying you won't be able to frighten away those scavengers, they're going to completely eat up those dead bodies. And we see the exact same thing in the picture of this worm that won't die, it won't be prevented by death from fully consuming these dead bodies. Again, they're called dead bodies in the picture that Isaiah is painting. So the, all of the imagery here co- and language here combines to paint a picture, not only of th- the unrighteous having died and, and remaining dead forever, but of their shame, their everlasting contempt being secured by means of the complete consumption of their bodies. Um now, you mentioned the, the the phrase unquenchable fire. We've already talked about what the phrase the fire won't be quenched. But this phrase unquenchable fire, that's all it means. And you can see that, for example, in Matthew chapter three, I think it is maybe verse 12, where John the Baptist says that um, the, the, the one who is coming will burn them up in unquenchable fire. And the word to burn there is the Greek word katakayo, which I mentioned earlier means to completely burn up. So unquenchable fire destroys, a worm that won't die will completely eat up a corpse. And that brings us to this last phrase, this no rest day or night, which comes from Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And your listeners might be interested to know that a friend of mine, who is also one of the Rethinking Hell contributors, he and I are presently finalizing a journal article that we're hoping to get published, in which we offer a very comprehensive case for conditional immortality, specifically from the book of Revelation. And so we have a lot of material there in on this passage. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll let you know personally when that becomes available and so yeah, you can sure. let your viewers know about it. Yeah. But anyway... The important thing to remember, there are two important things to remember at least about the Book of Revelation. Number one, the bulk of it, from about chapter four to the first half of chapter twenty-two, consists of an of an apocalyptic, symbolic vision that John saw. Um, these kinds of biblical visions, prophetic visions, they aren't straightforward. Visions of the future. It's not as if a camera were in the future and Recorded it and then and then the recording was sent back in time on blu-ray and John popped it into a TV and saw it That's not how it works the future is foretold in these kinds of visions in the form of perplexing esoteric symbols that are very often extremely difficult to interpret and you see this going back as far as the Genesis, when Joseph is in prison. Joseph, the quintessential dream interpreter, he's in prison because Potiphar's wife had um, lied and said that he would tried to seduce her or whatever. He's in prison and Pharaoh's uh, top cupbearer and baker are in prison as well. And they've got these perplexing dreams and Joseph interprets it. Um, and then late, he comes out of prison and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And just consider how bizarre Pharaoh's dream is. He's got this dream in which seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile. And they're grazing and then seven real sickly gaunt cows come up out of the Nile and eat the first seven This is bizarre. And if we were <laughs> if we didn't have Joseph's interpretation, we might come up with all sorts of crazy things to explain just what this imagery means But what does Joseph tell Pharaoh? The seven cows are seven years You know, he says the seven, cow, the seven healthy cows are seven years of plenty. The seven sickly cows are seven years of famine. That's the dynamic in this kind of vision throughout Scripture. When Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, when an angel interprets Daniel's dream. Even John himself, is his dream is interpreted for him. You'll, you'll recall this seven-headed, ten-horned beast mm-hmm. uh, on which a, 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 a harlot rides. And uh, an angel tells John, the seven heads are seven kings. So you've got this thing that John sees in the, in the bizarre imagery, and then you've got what it represents in reality. The other thing that needs to be kept in mind, and I'm going to put the pieces here together here in a moment. The other thing that needs to be kept in mind is that rarely is the imagery here um, come up with on its own. It, you know, Rarely do you see imagery where this is the first time it appears. Yeah. Very often it appears elsewhere in Revelation, and especially in the Old Testament, which is sort of the wellspring from which all of this imagery comes. So with all of that in mind, with those two pieces of information in mind, let me put them together now. In Revelation chapter 14, 9 to 11, several images are combined. There's the picture of drinking God's wrath, there's the picture of torment in fire and sulfur, and there's this picture of smoke rising from torment forever and ever. And it's these people who smoke from their torment rises forever who are said to have no rest day or night. Well, what's interesting is that all three of those images I just mentioned are used elsewhere in the book of Revelation. They're used later in Revelation 18 and 19. This blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the beast, she has the words Mystery Babylon written on her forehead, and she is made to drink of God's wrath. She is tormented in fire and sulfur, and at the beginning of Revelation chapter 19, a chorus cries out, hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. So you've got all three of those same images, but what does that smoke rising forever from the fiery torment of the harlot symbolize? She's well, burned an angel up. she's burned up. That's what the, that's what the angel tells John, that it symbolizes a city being thrown down with violence and never being found again. So All of this imagery combines to communicate death and destruction. It's very much like what you would see as a Westerner or as a 21st century modern if you saw a mushroom cloud. That would immediately click in your head as a symbol for total obliteration, right? The same is true of the smoke rising. And you see all of this imagery coming from the Old Testament as well. Um, When Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by fire from heaven, Abraham goes out and he looks at the plains and he sees smoke rising from the plains. In Isaiah chapter 34, verse 10, the streams of Edom. The city of Edom are turned to pitch Which is a kind of tar And it says its smoke will rise forever and ever but the, it, but the picture is meant to say That the city is going to be destroyed yeah. Right So all of this imagery It is very strange and bizarre to us yeah. But if we just let the scripture interpret itself for us yeah. um, We'll come away with the proper understanding Which is that these beast worshipers, The wicked will one day be destroyed Well it should be kind of obvious That
0: fire consumes whatever it burns Except for that burning bush in Exodus. Except for that one. So if you want well, to play to on fair, that analogy, good luck.
1: Well, that's a good point. But but, uh, but I'll, I, I will say that, to be fair, in the vision itself, some things thrown into the fire aren't burned up. No. Um, so, for example, in Revelation 20— Like 20, Daniel
0: and his friends.
1: Uh, No, but that's (laughs) another – but the interesting thing there is you're dealing with righteous people. But no, I'm talking about Revelation 20 where the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are said to be tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire. Mm. Importantly, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into it alive. And the text says that they will be tormented forever and ever. So not everything thrown into that fire – in fact, I would argue the opposite. In John's vision, in this incredibly symbolic vision that he sees, everything that is thrown into the lake of fire – isn't burned up. However, the symbolism of them being tormented forever in it is meant to evoke a picture of final destruction. In fact, it's not just the devil, the beast, and the false prophet that are thrown into that lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. It's also death and Hades them itself or themselves. And in the very next chapter, God says, death, eti death, shall be no more. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this picture of stuff being thrown into this fire and being tormented forever and ever in it is strange to us how that would symbolize the absolute annihilation of things. But every imaginable way that you can explore how that imagery is used elsewhere in scripture and in the book of Revelation itself leads to the conclusion that all of these images are being combined to evoke this picture of absolute death and destruction for all of God's enemies, including the, the enemy, the most, the biggest enemy, which is the enemy of death itself. Wow.
0: Okay, well, before we get to the bonus segment, uh, I got one more question for you, and before we get to the question, I want to say thank you to our patron supporters. Thanks so much uh, for your support. It's because of your giving that I get to produce free material on the internet like this, and uh, spread and defend the truth of Christianity, as well as have um, uh, very good uh, theological and biblical conversations like this one. And so, thank you for your support. If you want to become a supporter, you can follow the patron link in the description below, and head on over to our Patreon, uh, Patreon website and become a supporter there, where you will get access to the bonus segment, which is coming up shortly, so be sure to do that. Uh, Before we get to the bonus segment, uh, Chris, uh, again, thanks so much for joining me, Uh, but final question, uh, what would you say to someone who holds to a traditionalist view uh, in order to get them thinking, get them rethinking, one might even say, uh, about hell, and um, just kind of, yeah, what would you say to uh, get them to rethink this subject?
1: (sighs) It's 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 tough to offer a one size fits all answer because people have a variety of different reasons for holding to the view that they hold, holding to their particular view of eternal torment. But I think um, I think what I would ask them to do is to uh, I, I would ask them to uh, I would ask them to ask themselves: Does the biblical narrative? Does the biblical meta narrative? Um, seem to be one in which the um, enemy of death is overcome for all humankind. Because I think that if they explore the way the Bible answers that question in some of those passages I've mentioned before, Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, Luke chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 15, if they look at how the Bible answers they'll, that question, I think they'll see that indeed the enemy of death, as in the the, the loss and, and privation of embodied life, that enemy... Does, is not destroyed for all, all, all human They're the ones that are granted immortality. And so I would ask them: look at that biblical meta narrative and ask yourself if there's any language in Scripture which affirms explicitly that the wicked will um, be made immortal or will live forever. And I think that they'll, I think you'll find that everywhere where the, lang- the Bible uses that language, it's describing the righteous, the saved. Nowhere does the Bible say that the wicked will live forever and be immortal as well. Well, Chris Date,
0: everybody. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me, Chris. It was a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to the bonus segment. Again, if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Chris Date, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. Chris, thanks so much for joining me, man. It was a lot of fun.
1: My pleasure and honor. Thanks for having me on.